criminal behaviorology. To assist the criminal and civil justice systems. To improve our society. A podcast like no other. Here is your host, Timothy Joseph. And I am your host, Timothy Joseph. This is Criminal Behaviorology. Uh, would love to hear any reviews or ideas you have for the podcast. You can go on any of the podcast sites and write us a review, or you can go to our Facebook page, or you can write in criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com and just let us know. Love to hear your suggestions. What topics do you want us to cover? I'm going to be having some speaking engagements in the future. I'll be at Bay Path University on September the 16th, spreading the word about behavior analysis and work in the criminal and civil justice systems and all the areas that I think you might also be interested in yourself. Today's topic is something I've wanted to cover for some time and was never really sure quite how to approach it. It is the Shocking and, uh, I consider it, unusual case, the murder of Sylvia Likens. Wikipedia has a good summary on it. I also have the book House of Evil, the Indiana Torture Slaying by John Dean. And this uh, was also made into a movie. It's called An American Crime and, and another film. But I'm going to give you the the description and some of the details are are disturbing but i want to get into more of these kinds of cases and see if we can we can have an analysis if at all possible although this is going to be a difficult one starts out in wikipedia silvery sylvia marie likens january 3rd 1949 death october 26 1965 was an american teenager who was tortured and murdered by her caregiver, Gertrude Banaszewski, although uh, that individual had gone by the name Gertrude Wright. Her name was Banaszewski. Many of Banaszewski's children and several of their neighborhood friends also took place in the torture and murder. The abuse incrementally lasted for three months before Likens died from her extensive injuries and malnourishment October 26 in Indianapolis, Indiana. Likens was increasingly neglected, belittled, sexually humiliated, beaten, starved, lacerated, and dehydrated by her tormentors. Her autopsy showed 150 wounds across her body including several burns and receded skin. Through intimidation her younger sister Jenny was occasionally forced to participate in her mistreatment. The official cause of death was determined to be a homicide caused by a combination of subdural hematoma and shock complicated by severe malnutrition. Gertrude Banaszewski, her oldest daughter Paula, her son John, and two neighborhood youths, Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs, were all convicted in May 1966 of neglecting, torturing, and murdering Likens. At the defendant's trial... Deputy Prosecutor Leroy New described the case as, quote, the most diabolical case to ever come before a court or jury, unquote. And Gertrude's defense attorney, William C. 
Urbecker described lichens as having been subjected to acts of, quote, degradation that you wouldn't commit on a dog, unquote, before her death. That was the defense attorney. After eight hours of deliberation, the jury found Gertrude Banaszewski guilty of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life imprisonment, but was released on parole in 1985. Paula was found guilty of second-degree murder and released in 1972. Hobbs, Hubbard, and John were found guilty of manslaughter and served less than two years in the Indiana Reformatory before being granted parole in February of 1968. So that you might get an idea of why this is so shocking. So this, uh, this case involved uh, basically a babysitting job. Uh, where Gertrude Banaszewski was taking care of uh, Sylvia and her sister, uh, Jenny, because the parents were carnival workers and were off doing their work, so they agreed to pay Gertrude Banaszewski uh, $20 a week to care for uh, their two daughters. And during this time is when this these acts of torture committed by Gertrude Banaszewski and her children and neighborhood children took place. The torture and murder of Sylvia Likens is widely regarded by Indiana citizens as the worst crime ever committed in their state and has been described by a senior investigator in the Indianapolis Police Department as the most sadistic case he has ever investigated in the 35 years he served with the Indianapolis Police. So I'm going to say a little background now. Uh, Gertrude Banaszewski, who later changed her name. Uh, she was born in Indianapolis. She was a high school dropout. At age 16, um, she married 18-year-old John Banaszewski, originally from Youngsville, Pennsylvania. And she bore uh, four children from that marriage, although Banaszewski had a John Banaszewski had a volatile temper and occasionally beat his wife. The two would remain together for 10 years. Uh, prior to their divorce. Following her divorce, Banaszewski married a man named Edward Guthrie. The marriage lasted just three months before the couple divorced. Shortly thereafter, Banaszewski remarried her first husband. The couple divorced for a second time in 1963. Weeks after her third divorce, Banaszewski began, Gertrude Banaszewski began a relationship with a 22-year-old named Dennis Lee Wright, who physically abused her. She had one child with Wright, Dennis Lee Wright Jr. Shortly after the birth of their son, Wright abandoned Banaszewski. Shortly thereafter, Banaszewski filed a paternity suit against Wright for financial support of their child, although Wright was seldom able to pay for the upkeep of their son. By 1965, Banaszewski lived alone with her seven, seven children, Paula, 17, Stephanie, 15, John, 12, Marie, 11, Shirley, 10, James, 8, and Dennis Lee Wright, who was one year old. Although 36 years old and 5 foot 6 inches, she weighed only 100 pounds, Banaszewski did, and has been described as haggard, underweight, asthmatic, chain smoker, who suffered from depression due to the stress of three failed marriages, a failed relationship, and a recent miscarriage. In addition to the sporadic checks she received from her first husband, a former Indianapolis policeman, 
She primarily relied upon financially, uh, which she re- the policeman she relied upon for financial support of her children. Banaszewski occasionally performed odd jobs for neighbors and acquaintances, such as sewing or cleaning, in order to earn money. She resided in Indianapolis on New York Street, where at that time the rent was monthly at $55. So the victim, Sylvia Likens, uh, was the third of five children born to carnival workers Lester Cecil Likens and his wife uh, Elizabeth Betty Francis. She was born between two sets of fraternal twins, Daniel Diana and uh, Benny and Jenny. Jenny Likens suffered from polio, causing one of her legs to be weaker than the other. She was afflicted with a notable limp and had to wear a steel brace on one leg. Lester and Elizabeth's marriage was unstable. They often sold candy, beer, and soda at carnival stands around Indiana throughout the summer, moving frequently and regularly experiencing severe financial difficulties. The Lycan sons regularly traveled with them in order to assist with their job, but Sylvia and Jenny were discouraged from doing the same out of concern for their safety and education. As a result, both sisters frequently stayed with their relatives, often their grandmother. In her teenage years, Sylvia Likens occasionally earned uh, some spending money by babysitting, running errands, ironing chores for friends and neighbors. She had been described as a friendly, confident, lively girl with long, wavy, light brown hair extending below her shoulders and was known as Cookie to her friends. Although exuberant, Likens always kept her mouth closed when smiling due to his missing front tooth which she had lost while roughhousing with one of her brothers during a childhood game. She also had a fondness for music, in particular the Beatles, which notably was notably protective of her markedly more timid and insecure younger sister. On several occasions, the two sisters would visit a local skating rink where Sylvia would help Jenny skate by holding her hand while Jenny skated with her unaffected foot. So in July of 1965... Sylvia and Jenny Likens resided with their parents in Indianapolis. Uh, Their mother was arrested and subsequently jailed for shoplifting. Shortly thereafter, Lester Likens arranged for his daughters to board with Gertrude Banaszewski, the mother of two girls with whom the sisters had recently become acquainted while studying at Arsenal Technical High School. And those two uh, girls were Paula and Stephanie Banaszewski. At the time of this boarding agreement, Gertrude assured Lester he would care, she would care for his daughters until his return, as if they were her own children. Shortly after July 4th holiday, the sisters moved into, Jenny and Sylvia moved into uh, New York Street in order for their father and later their mother to travel to the East Coast with the carnival. And with the understanding that Gertrude would receive weekly boarding fees of $20 to care for their daughters until they returned to collect the two girls in November of that year. During the initial weeks in which Sylvia and Jenny resided in the Banaszewski household, the sisters were subject to very little discipline or abuse. Likens regularly sang along to pop records with Stephanie, and she willingly participated in housework at the Banaszewski residence. Both girls also regularly attended Sunday school with the Banaszewski children and the pastor uh, commending Sylvia's piety. Okay. 
Well, it didn't take long before things took a turn for the worse, which I'm going to describe here momentarily. I'm interested in the case because I'm looking for explanations for this. And it's not just child abuse. It is also kind of a sociological explanation because many people were involved in this. Many people have could have gone to the authorities and did not do so. So it's a it's a much broader topic than uh, just a case of, of child abuse. But I will get into that momentarily. Abuse. Although Lester Likens had agreed to pay Banishevsky $20 a week in exchange for the care of his daughters, after approximately two weeks, these payments failed to consistently arrive upon the prearranged dates, occasionally arriving one or two days late. And in uh, the book by John Dean, House of Evil, he mentions that uh, receipts about uh, money orders were brought forth indicating that those payments had been made. However, in response, Gertrude began venting her frustration at this fact upon the sisters by beating their bare buttocks with various instruments such as a one-quarter-inch thick paddle, making statements like, well, I took care of you two little bitches for a week for nothing. On one occasion, both girls were beaten approximately 15 times on the back with the paddle after Paula had accused the sisters of eating too much food at a church supper the household children had attended. By mid-August 1965, Gertrude Banaszewski had begun her, to focus her abuse almost exclusively upon Sylvia, with her primary motivation likely being jealousy of her physical appearance and potential in life. They have a, a link here. I mean, it does seem that way. I'm just not willing to, to say that was the motive. According to the subsequent trial testimony, this abuse was initially inflicted upon Sylvia after she and Jenny had returned to the Banaszewski residence from Arsenal Technical High School as well as on weekends. The initial abuse included subjecting Likens to beatings and starvation, forcing her to eat leftovers or spoiled food out of garbage cans, on one occasion, Likens was accused of stealing candy she had actually purchased. On another occasion, Likens was subjected to humiliation when she claimed to have a boyfriend in Long Beach whom she had met in the spring of 1965 when her family lived in California. In response to hearing this, Gertrude asked if she had ever done anything with a boy to which Likens, unsure of her meeting, replied, I guess so and uh, mentioned that she'd gone skating with boys and had once gone to a park on the beach with them and Jenny. Continuing the conversation with Stephanie Banaszewski and Jenny, Likens mentioned that she had once lain under the covers with her boyfriend. Upon hearing this, Gertrude asked, Why did you do that, Sylvia? And Sylvia replied, I don't know. Several days later, Gertrude returned to the subject of Likens, telling her, You're certainly getting big in the stomach, Sylvia. It looks like you're going to have a baby. Sylvia thought Gertrude was kidding with her and said, 
Yeah, it sure is getting big. I'm just going to have to go on a diet. However, Gertrude then informed her and the other girls in the house, whenever they did something, quote, did something with a boy, they would be sure to have a baby. She then kicked Sylvia in the genitals. Paula, herself overweight, three months pregnant, this is Paula Banaszewski now, herself overweight, three months pregnant, and also uh, jealous, according to the Wikipedia article, also jealous of Lycan's physical appearance, then participated in attacking Lycan's, knocking her off her chair and onto the kitchen floor, shouting, You ain't fit to sit in a chair. Another occasion, as the family ate supper, Gertrude Paula and a neighborhood boy named Randy Gordon Lepper force-fed Lycan's a hot dog overloaded with condiments, including mustard, ketchup, and spices. Lycan's vomited as a result and was later forced to consume what she had regurgitated in what was Lycan's only act of retaliations. Th this is another speculation, I think, here in the article, because I'm not sure this is proven either but she is alleged to have spread a rumor at Arsenal Technical High School that Stephanie and Paula Banaszewski were prostitutes. She supposedly did this because she was upset with the household singling her out for similar accusations. Well, that is possible. Uh, while at school, Stephanie was jokingly propositioned by a boy who later told her that Likens had started this rumor about her. Upon returning home that day, Stephanie questioned Likens about the rumor, and she admitted starting it. Stephanie punched her in response, but Sylvia apologized to her in tears, and Stephanie then also began to cry. However, Stephanie's boyfriend, 15-year-old Coy Hubbard, heard of the rumor. He brutally attacked Sylvia, slapping her, banging her head against the wall, and flipping her backwards onto the floor. When Gertrude Banaszewski found out, she used a paddle to beat Sylvia Likens. On another occasion, Paula beat Likens about the face with such force that she broke her own wrist, having primarily focused her blows upon Likens' teeth and eyes. Later, Paula used the cast on her wrist that was put there because she broke her wrist beating Sylvia, used the cast on her wrist to further beat her, Gertrude repeatedly falsely accused uh, Sylvia of promiscuity and of engaging in prostitution, delivering to rants to Likens regarding the filthiness of prostitution and women in general. Gertrude would later occasionally force Jenny to strike her own sister, beating Jenny Likens if she did not comply. Coy Hubbard and several of his Classmates frequently visited the Banaszewski residence to both physically and verbally torment Likens, often collaborating with Banaszewski's children and Gertrude herself. With the active encouragement of Gertrude, these neighborhood ch children routinely beat Likens, sometimes using her as a practice dummy in violent judo sessions, lacerating her body, burning her skin with list cigarettes in excess of a hundred times, and severely injuring her genitals this is disturbing, to entertain Gertrude and her teenage accomplices. Likens was forced at one point to strip naked in the family living room and masturbate with a glass Pepsi bottle in their presence, with Gertrude stating to all present that this act of humiliation was for Sylvia to prove, quote, prove to Jenny what kind of girl you are, unquote. Gertrude eventually forbade 
Sylvia Likens from attending school after she confessed to have stolen a gym suit from the school due to Gertrude having refused to purchase the clothing for her. For this act of theft, Gertrude whipped Likens with a three-inch wide police belt. Gertrude then switched her conversation to the evils of premarital sex before kicking Likens as Stephanie rallied to Likens' defense, shouting, She didn't do anything. Gertrude then burned Likens' fingertips with matches before further whipping her. A few days later, Gertrude repeatedly whipped Jenny with the police belt after she reportedly stole a single tennis shoe from school to wear on her strong foot. Remember, she had a problem uh, with walking. The Lycan sisters were fearful of notifying either family members or adults at their school of the increasing incidents of abuse and neglect they were enduring, as both were afraid that doing so would worsen their predicament. Jenny in particular struggled against the urge to notify family members as she had been threatened by Gertrude that she would herself be abused and tortured to the same degree as her sister if she did so. Jenny was also subjected to bullying by girls in her neighborhood, in addition to occasionally being ridiculed or beaten whenever she alluded to Sylvia's situation. In July and August, both Lester and Elizabeth Likens, the, the girl's parents, would occasionally return to Indianapolis to visit their daughters whenever their travel schedule afforded them the opportunity. The last occasion Lester and Elizabeth visited their daughters was in late August. On this occasion, neither girl exhibited any visible sign of distress about their mistreatment to their parents. This was likely because both were in the presence of Gertrude and her children. Almost immediately after Lester and Elizabeth had left the Banaszewski household on their initial visit, Gertrude turned to face Likens, I assume this is Sylvia, and stated, Oh yeah, well, yeah what are you going to do now, Sylvia? Now they're gone. On one occasion in September, the girls encountered their older sister, Diana Shoemaker, at a local park. Both Jenny and Sylvia informed Diana about the abuse they were enduring at the hands of their caregiver, adding that Sylvia was being specifically targeted for abuse and almost always for things she had neither said nor done. Neither sister mentioned the actual address where they resided, and initially Diana believed her sisters must be exaggerating their claims regarding the scope of their mistreatment. Several weeks prior to this, Sylvia and Jenny had encountered Diana in the same park while in the company of 11-year-old Marie Banaszewski, and Sylvia had begun as a sandwich to eat when she mentioned to her sister that she was hungry. Likens remained silent about the matter, although Mary revealed this fact to her family in late September. In response, Gertrude accused Likens of engaging in gluttony before she and Paula choked and bludgeoned her. The pair then subjected Likens to a scalding bath in order to cleanse her of sin, unquote, with Gertrude grabbing Likens' hair and repeatedly banging her head against the bath to revive her whenever she fainted. Shortly after this incident, the father of a neighborhood boy named Michael John Monroe phoned Arsenal Technical High School to anonymously report that a girl with open sores across her entire body was living at the Banaszewski household. As Likens had not attended school for several days, a school nurse visited East New York Street to investigate these claims. Gertrude claimed 
to the nurse that Likens had run away from her home the previous week and that she was unaware of her actual whereabouts, adding that Likens was, quote, out of control, unquote, and that her open sores were a result of Likens' refusal to maintain decent personal hygiene. Gertrude further claimed that Likens was a bad influence on both her own children and her sister. The school made no further investigations concerning Likens' welfare. The immediate neighbors of the Banaszewski family were a middle-aged couple named Raymond and Phyllis Vermillion. Both initially viewed Gertrude as the ideal caregiver for the Likens sisters, and both had visited the Banaszewski residence on two occasions while the girls had been under Gertrude's care. On both occasions, the Vermillions witnessed Paula physically abusing Likens, who on both occasions had a black eye and openly boasting about her mistreatment of the children to them. Upon their second visit to the Banaszewski household, both observed Likens to appear extremely meek and somewhat, quote, zombified in nature. Nevertheless, the Vermillions never reported Likens' evident mistreatment to the authorities. On or about October 1, Diana Shoemaker discovered that her sisters were temporarily residing at the Banaszewski residence. She visited the property in an attempt to initiate regular contact. Gertrude, however, refused Diana entrance to her property, stating that they had received permission from their parents not to allow either of these girls to see her. She then ordered Diana off her property. Approximately two weeks later, Diana encountered Jenny by chance close to the home, fired as to Sylvia's welfare. She was informed, quote, I can't tell you or I'll get into trouble. Due to the increase in the frequency and brutality of the torture, mistreatment she was subjected to, Sylvia Likens gradually became incontinent. She was denied any access to the bathroom, being forced to wet herself. As a form of punishment for her incontinence, on October 6, Gertrude threw Likens into the basement and tied her up. Here Likens was often kept naked, rarely fed, and frequently deprived of water. Occasionally she was tied to the railing of the basement stairs, with her feet barely touching the ground. In the weeks prior to locking Likens in the family basement, Gertrude had increasingly abused and tormented Likens. She would occasionally falsely claim to the children in her household that either she herself or one of them had been the recipient of direct insults from Sylvia in the hope this would goad them into belittling or attacking her. On one occasion, Gertrude held a knife aloft and challenged Likens to fight me back. To which Likens replied she did not know how to fight. In response, Gertrude inflicted a light uh, scour wound to Likens' leg. Physical and mental torment such as this was occasionally ceased by the Banaszewskis to watch their favorite television shows. Neighborhood children were occasionally charged five cents apiece to see the display of Likens' body and to humiliate, beat, scald, burn, and ultimately mutilate her. Yes. Throughout Likens' captivity in the basement, Gertrude frequently, with the assistance of her children and neighborhood children, restrained and gagged Likens before placing her in a bathtub filled with scalding water and proceeding to rub salt into her wounds. On one occasion, Gertrude and her 12-year-old son, John Jr., rubbed urine and feces from Gertrude's one-year-old son's diaper into Likens' mouth before giving her a cup half filled with water and stating 
the water was all she would receive for the remainder of the day. On October 22nd, John Banaszewski Jr. tormented Likens by offering to allow her to eat a bowl of soup with her fingers and then quickly taking away the bowl when Likens, by this stage suffering from extreme malnourishment, attempted to eat the food. Gertrude Banaszewski eventually allowed Likens to sleep upstairs on the condition that she learned not to wet herself. That night, Sylvia whispered to Jenny to secretly give her a glass of water before falling asleep. The following morning, Gertrude discovered that Likens had urinated on herself. As a punishment, Likens was forced to insert an empty glass Coca-Cola bottle uh, into herself in the presence of, Ban of the Banaszewski children before Gertrude ordered her into the basement. Shortly thereafter, Gertrude shouted for Likens to return to the kitchen and ordered her to strip naked before proclaiming to her, and this is from testimony, you have branded my daughters, now I am going to brand you. She began carving the words, I'm a prostitute, and proud of it, onto Lycan's abdomen with a heated needle. When Gertrude was unable to finish the branding, she instructed one of the neighborhood children present, 14-year-old Richard Hobbs, to finish etching the words into Lycan's flesh as she took Jenny to a nearby grocery store. In what Hobbs would later insist were short, light etchings, he continued to brand the text into Lycan's abdomen, as she clenched her teeth and moaned. Both Hobbs and 10-year-old Shirley Banaszewski then led Likens to the basement where each proceeded to use an anchor bolt in attempt to burn the letter S beneath Sylvia's left breast, although they applied one section of the loop backwards, and this deep burn scar would resemble the numeral 3. Gertrude later taunted Likens by claiming she would never be able to marry due to the words carved in her stomach, stating, quote, Sylvia, you are going, what are you going to do now? You can't get married now. What are you going to do? Weeping, Likens replied, I guess there's nothing I can do. Later that day, Likens was forced to display the carving to neighborhood children, with Gertrude claiming she had received the inscription at a sex party. That night, Sylvia confided to her sister, Quote, Jenny, I know you don't want me to die, but I'm going to die. I can tell it, unquote. The following day, Gertrude Banaszewski woke Likens, then forced her to write a letter as she dictated the contents, which were intended to mislead her parents into believing their daughter had run away from the Banaszewski residence. The content of this letter was intended to frame a group of anonymous local boys for extensively abusing and mutilating Likens after she had initially agreed to engage in sexual relations with them before they inflicted the extreme abuse and torture upon her body. After Likens had written this letter, Gertrude finished formulating her plan to have John Jr. and Jenny blindfold Sylvia and then take her to a nearby wooded area known as Jimmy's Forest and leave her there to die. So that should eliminate that right there should uh, pretty much eliminate any kind of an insanity defense if if it's gone up to this much planning and uh, consciousness of guilt and attempts to cover up the crime and things like that. After she had finished writing the letter, Likens was then 
tied to the stair railing and offered crackers to eat, although she refused them by saying, Give it to the dog. I don't want it. In response, Gertrude forced the crackers into Lycan's mouth before she and John Banaszewski beat her, particularly around the stomach. On October 25th, Sylvia Lycan's attempted to escape from the basement after overhearing a conversation between Gertrude and John Banaszewski, uh, Jr., pertaining to the family's plan to abandon her to die. She attempted to flee the front door. However, due to her extensive injuries and general weakness, Gertrude caught her before she could escape the property. Likens was then given toast to eat, but was unable to consume the food due to her extreme state of dehydration. Gertrude forced the toast into her mouth before repeatedly striking her face with a curtain rod until sections of the instrument were bent into right angles. Coy Hubbard then took the curtain rod from Gertrude and struck Likens one further time, rendering her unconscious. Gertrude then dragged Likens into the basement. That evening, Likens desperately attempted to alert neighbors by screaming for help and hitting the walls of the basement with a spade. One immediate neighbor of the Banaszewskis would later inform police she had heard the desperate commotion and that she had identified the sources emanating from the basement of the Banaszewski home, but that as the noise had suddenly ceased at approximately 3 a.m., she decided not to inform police about the disturbance. So Sylvia Likens' death. By the morning of October 26, Likens was unable to speak intelligibly or correctly coordinate the movement of her limbs. Gertrude did move Likens into the kitchen and, having propped her back against a wall, attempted to feed her a donut and a glass of milk, although she threw Likens to the floor in frustration when Sylvia was unable to correctly move the glass of milk to her lips. She was then returned to the basement. Shortly thereafter, Likens became delirious, repeatedly moaning and mumbling. When Paula asked her to recite the English alphabet, Sylvia was unable to recite anything beyond the first four letters or to raise herself off the ground. In response, Paula verbally threatened her to either stand up or she would inflict a long jump on her. Gertrude then ordered Likens, who had defecated, to clean herself. That afternoon, several of Likens' other tormentors, tormentors gathered in the basement. Sylvia jerkingly moved her arms in an apparent attempt to point at the faces of the tormentors she could recognize, making statements such as, You're Ricky, you're Gertie, before Gertrude tersely shouted, Shut up, you know who I am. Minutes later, Likens unsuccessfully attempted to bite into a rotten pear she had been given to eat, stating she could feel the looseness of her teeth. Upon hearing this, Jenny replied, Don't you remember, Sylvia? Your front tooth was knocked out when you were seven. Jenny then left Sylvia in the basement to perform gardening chores for neighbors in the hope of earning spending money. In an attempt to wash lichens, a laughing John Banaszewski Jr. sprayed her with a garden hose brought to the house that afternoon by Randy Lepper at Gertrude's request. Lichens again desperately attempted to exit the basement but collapsed before she could reach the stairs. In response to this effort, Gertrude stamped upon Lichens' head before standing and staring at her for several moments. Shortly after 5.30 p.m., Richard Hobbs returned to the Banaszewski residence and immediately proceeded to the basement. 
He slipped on the wet basement stairs and fell heavily to the floor of the basement to be confronted with the sight of Stephanie crying and cuddling Lycan's emaciated and lacerated body after she had been ordered by her mother to clean Sylvia. Stephanie and Richard then decided to give Lycan's a warm soapy bath and dress her in new clothes. They then laid her upon a mattress in one of the bedrooms as Sylvia muttered her final wish that her that her father was there and that Stephanie would take her home. Stephanie then turned to her younger sister, Shirley, exclaiming, Oh, she'll be all right. When Stephanie realized Likens was not breathing, she attempted to apply mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. As Gertrude repeatedly shouted to the children in the house that Likens was faking her death. Likens was 16 years old when she finally succumbed to her injuries. Now we have the arrest. Gertrude Banaszewski initially beat Lycan's corpse with a book, shouting, Faker! Faker! in order to rouse her. However, she soon panicked and instructed Richard Hobbs to call the police from a nearby payphone. When the police arrived at her address at approximately 6.30 p.m., Gertrude led the officers to Lycan's emaciated, extensively bludgeoned, and mutilated body lying on a soiled mattress in the bedroom. Before handing them the letter, she had forced Likens to write previously by her dictation. She also claimed she had been doctoring the child for an hour, doctoring in quotes, or more prior to her death, having applied rubbing alcohol to Likens' wounds and futile attempts at first aid before she had died. She added that Likens had earlier run away from her home with several teenage boys before returning to the house earlier that afternoon bare-breasted and clutching the note. Clutching a Bible, Paula Banaszewski, having stated to all present in the household that Lycan's death was meant to happen, then glanced in Jenny's direction and calmly stated, If you want to live with us, Jenny, we'll treat you like our own sister. As instructed by Gertrude, Jenny Lycan's recited and rehearsed the rehearsed version of events leading to Lycan's death to police before whispering to the officers, you get me out of here and I'll tell you everything. The formal statement provided by Jenny Likens prompted officers to arrest Gertrude, Paula, Stephanie, and John Jr. Banaszewski of suspicion of Likens' murder within hours of the discovery of her body. The same day, Coy Hubbard and Richard Hobbs were arrested and charged with the same offenses. The three eldest Banaszewski children, plus Coy Hubbard, were placed in the custody of a nearby juvenile detention center the younger Banaszewski children and Richard Hobbs were detained at the Indianapolis Children's Guardian's home. All were held without bail pending trial. Initially, Gertrude denied any involvement in Lycan's death, although by October 27th she had confessed to knowing, to having known, quote, the kids, unquote, particularly her daughter Paula, and Coy Hubbard had physically and emotionally abused Lycan, stating, Paula did most of the damage, and Coy Hubbard did a lot of the beating. Gertrude further attempted, further admitted to having forced the girl to sleep in the basement on approximately three occasions when she had wet the bed. She became evasive when one officer stated the likely reasons Lycan's had become incontinent were the mental distress and injury to her kidneys. Lacking any remorse, Paula signed a statement admitting to having repeatedly beaten Likens about the backside with her mother's police belt. 
once breaking her wrist on Lycan's jaw and inflicting other acts of brutality, brutality, including pushing her down the stairs of the basement two or three times and inflicting a black eye. John Jr. admitted to having spanked Sylvia on one occasion, adding that most of the time I used my fists to abuse her. He admitted to having burned Sylvia with matches on several occasions, adding that his mother had repeatedly burned the child with cigarettes. Five other neighborhood children who had participated in Lycan's abuse, Michael Monroe, Randy Leppard, Darlene McGuire, Judy Duke, and Anna Sisko, had also been arrested on October 29th. All were charged with causing injury to person, and each was subsequently released into the custody of their parents under subpoena to appear as witnesses at the upcoming trial. The indictments on December 30th, 1965, the Marion County Grand Jury, Marion County is Indianapolis, Grand Jury returned first-degree murder indictments against Gertrude Banaszewski and two of her three oldest children, Paula and John Banaszewski Jr. Also indicted were Richard Hobbs and Coy Hubbard. All were charged with having repeatedly struck, beaten, kicked, and otherwise inflicting a culmination of fatal injuries to Sylvia Likens. Three weeks prior to the filing of the indictments against the five defendants, Stephanie Banaszewski had been released from custody upon a writ of habeas corpus bond, with her attorney successfully contending with the state had insufficient evidence to support any murder or culmination of fatal injuries charges against her. Stephanie waived her immunity from any potential impending prosecution while agreeing to testify against her family and any other individuals charged with abusing and murdering Sylvia Likens. At a formal pretrial hearing held on March 16, 1966, several psychiatrists testified before Judge Sal Isaac Robb as to their conclusions regarding psychiatric evaluations they had conducted upon three individuals indicted upon Sylvia Likens' murder. These experts testified that all three were mentally competent to stand trial. We'll hear a little bit more about that later. The trial itself. The trial of Gertrude Banaszewski, her children Paula and John, Richard Hobbs, and Coy Hubbard began on April 18, 1966. All were tried together before Judge Robb at Indianapolis City County Building. Initial jury selection began on this day. Of course, it continued for several days. The prosecution consisted of Leroy K. New and Marjorie Wesner, who announced their intention to seek the death penalty for all five defendants on April 16th. They also successfully argued before Judge Robb that all the defendants should be tried together as they were ultimately charged with acting in concert in their collective crimes against Likens, and that as such, if each were tried separately, neither judge nor jury could hear testimony relating to a total picture of the accumulation of the offenses. Each prospective juror was questioned by counsels for both prosecution and defense in relation to their opinions regarding capital punishment being a just penalty for first-degree murder and whether a mother was actually responsible for the deportment of her children. Jurors were ex who expressed any opposition to the death penalty were excused from duty by Leroy New. Any who 
either worked with children, expressed prejudice against an insanity defense, or repulsion regarding actual horrific nature of Lycan's death were excused by defense counsels. This is kind of uh, part of the process of selecting a jury. Gertrude Banaszewski was defended by William Urbecker. Her daughter Paula was defended by George Rice. Richard Hobbs was defended by James G. Netter. John Banaszewski Jr. and Coy Hubbard were defended by Forrest Bowman. Bowman. The attorneys for Richard Hobbs, Coy Hubbard, Paula, and John Banajewski Jr. claimed they had been pressured into participating in Lycan's torment, abuse, and torture, and torture by Gertrude Banaszewski. Banaszewski herself pled not guilty by reason of insanity. So let's talk about that. I have the book House of Evil, the Indiana torture slaying. The author is John Dean. This was, well, it's a, the print I have is from 2008. The author, a former newspaper reporter who has articles published, uh, Rolling Stone Esquire, Chicago Journalism Review. Guy sounds like a real character. You read up on him, John Dean. Now, one thing I'll say that's nice about the book, he has a, a nice uh, rundown of principal characters, so I'm going to give a recap of that. So, of course, it's Gertrude Banaszewski, also known as Gertrude Wright, 37 years old. Her children are Paula Banaszewski, who's 17, Stephanie Banaszewski, 15, Johnny, 12, all of which were charged with murder. You have Marie Banaszewski, 11, Shirley Banaszewski, 10, Jimmy Banaszewski, 8, and Dennis Lee Wright Jr., who was one year old. You have the neighbor, Ricky Hobbs, who's 14. You have the neighbor, Coy Hubbard, who is 15. Both Ricky and Coy are charged with murder. Sylvia Likens, the victim, is 16 years old, the daughter of carnivore workers, and she boarded with Mrs. Banaszewski. Sylvia's sister, Jenny Likens, 15. Uh, the parents, Lester Likens, 39, and Betty Likens, 37. Uh, you have an attorney for Mrs. Banaszewski is William C. Urbecker. Uh, you have attorneys for the children, too. The other children, they're being prosecuted. You have Sergeant William E. Kaiser, Indianapolis uh, homicide detective. Leroy K. New and Marjorie Westner are the prosecutors. The judge's name is uh, Saul Rob, R-A-B-B, is the trial judge. So I'm going to go to chapter 17. And this goes to the mental health aspect of this case. Chapter 17, A Passive Personality. Gertrude Banaszewski appeared wan and sleepy as she began in a soft, weak voice to tell of the hardships of her 37 years. Her tale of woe was credible enough until she began to relate her knowledge of the murder of Sylvia Likens, and then it soon became obvious that she either was lying or had a notoriously poor memory. This is during her testimony. Later, an hour and 11 minutes of relentless cross-examination by Leroy New brought out numerous discrepancies in her testimony. 
Gertrude testified that she at first refused to take in Sylvia and Jenny, but bowed to their imploring father. She went on to say that she was sick in bed much of the time Sylvia lived with her and that she never harmed Sylvia. Gertrude choked back tears as she told of prior hardships. Quote, it was a real run-down home, unquote, she said at the house uh, on New York Street in Indianapolis, but it was all I could afford at the time. I believe I tried paddling her once, Gertrude said of Sylvia, but should she ever strike, beat, or kick her in October? No, sir, I did not. Her direct testimony continued at 1.34 p.m. after a noon recess. A bit chilly in the air-conditioned courtroom, she had slipped a brown cardigan over her sleeveless blue sweater. Gertrude said she did not recall any events the last few days of Sylvia's life, except a couple of trips to the doctor. I remember handing them a note, she added, about the note she gave to the policeman. I don't know which one of the children gave it to me. Other than fights, she had seen no mistreatment of Sylvia by the other children either. Sometimes I would try to break it up, she said of the fighting, but generally she said she was too weak or sick to break it up, the fighting. On cross-examination, New confronted her with numerous contradictions between her trial testimony and the testimony she had given before the Marion County Grand Jury. Although she told the trial jury she did not recall being out of bed on October 26th, the day Sylvia died, and had not been upstairs or in the basement, her bedroom was on the first floor, her grand jury testimony had been that the smell in the basement was gagging me, and I started, you know, wanting to vomit. So I came back up, and, she says, when I went upstairs that one time, my eyes were open then. New asked her if she recalled the, that grand jury testimony. I really don't remember what I did at the time, she replied, showing signs of belligerence. In any event, New said, you were not sleeping. She told the trial jury she did not recall saying anything to Sylvia, as the girl lay incoherent in the basement on October 26th. But her grand jury testimony had been, I asked her to please come up and let me clean her up. Let them clean her up. Why did you want her upstairs instead of downstairs? Asked the deputy prosecutor. Were you lying to the grand jury? He asked. Are you lying to this jury? She replied, no, sir, to both questions. New, who had been energetically pacing the floor between the prosecutor's table and the witness stand, arching his eyebrows and breathing like a dragon exhaling flame, drew out the horrid autopsy photographs of Sylvia's, Sylvia's fantastically mutilated nude body. I have seen that, she snapped, and if you don't mind, I don't want to see it again. But New shoved the photos under her nose and she recoiled, her mouth gaping. Why don't you look at that girl's body? he asked. I don't think anything dead is very pleasant to look at, she said. Now, did Sylvia have sores on her body? New asked. No, not to my knowledge. Now, the fact is, New said, you're lying, aren't you? No, sir, she said. Now, as a matter of fact, New said, you beat this little girl and scalded her with hot water, Mrs. Vanishevsky. No, sir, I did not, she said. She said she was not blaming the children for injuring Sylvia either. 
New asked whether testimony and signed statements of others, including her own children, contained lies. She said yes. Asked why her son Johnny would lie about her, she said, I imagine he's a pretty scared little boy. Are you scared? New asked. I've been scared about a lot of things for a long time, she said. Did Reverend Julian lie to this jury? New asked, referring to some earlier testimony that was damaging to Banaszewski. He most certainly did, she said. I think that's all, said New, concluding his cross-examination. Gertrude was cross-examined briefly by the other defense lawyers, and then Urbecker tried to recoup some of the losses with additional questions. That's an interesting thing about a trial like this. So you got multiple defendants. They're all being tried at the same time. They each have their own attorneys. So there's a lot of cross-examination cross going on. But soon, Mrs. Banaszewski began to twist in the witness chair, complaining, My back is hurting pretty bad. Court was adjourned at 4.16 p.m. When court reconvened at 9 a.m. the next day, Wednesday, May 11th, Deputy Prosecutor New had a few omitted questions to ask. To counterattack Urbecker's suggestion that Mrs. Banaszewski went before the grand jury on poor advice from her previous lawyer, who was named John Hammond, New introduced in evidence the waiver of immunity she had signed before testifying. It set out clearly that she did not have to testify and that any testimony she gave could be used against her. Before the waiver was allowed into evidence, Urbecker gained permission for preliminary questioning to determine whether Mrs. Banaszewski knew what she was signing. Did you know, he asked, that you were signing what you were signing could conceivably send you to the electric chair? New's objection was sustained. New then brought out more grand jury testimony conflict with her testimony the previous day in which she had spent much of October in bed sick. She told the grand jury, I never got to go to bed. You see, I've got children. When Urbecker regained the witness, he began to ask more questions about the previous attorney, John Hammond. Urbecker said he was attempting to show that Hammond dealt all the Banaszewski cases out to other attorneys after the grand jury investigation. Objection sustained. Hammond's not on trial, Judge Robb reminded. Urbecker's next witness was young crew-cut Dr. William A. Shuck, Jr., Marion County Jail physician. He confirmed that Gertrude was a chronic sufferer of asthma and bronchitis. He added that she had had a severe rash about the face and neck at the time of her arrest, probably eczema. He said he had prescribed a tranquilizer, Thorazine, for her. On cross-examination, New asked Dr. Shuck whether he believed Gertrude to be sane or insane. I have no opinion, the doctor said, but he said he saw nothing to indicate she was insane. Sound asleep in a chair in the courtroom antechamber, as Dr. Shuck testified, was another man, about 40, with a dark complexion, neatly dressed. A newspaper photographer was having fun snapping pictures of him in his slumber. He was soon called as the next witness for Gertrude Banaszewski, and he identified himself as Jerome Joseph Relkin, a psychologist. His credentials were a bachelor's degree in psychology from Rutgers, a master's from Temple University, practical completion of his coursework for a Ph.D. in clinical psychology from Purdue University, 
and internships at the uh, Norman M. Beatty Memorial State Hospital in Westville, Indiana. The hospital no longer exists. They converted it into a prison. And the LaRue D. Carter Memorial State Hospital in Indianapolis, the state psychiatric hospital, LaRue Carter. He was writing his dissertation in criminal psychology, specifically in the areas of aggressive and impulsive behavior, Relkin was. He had tested and interviewed Gertrude Beneshevsky for three hours in the jail the previous Sunday. Tests he had given her included the thematic apperception test and the, quote, hand test, unquote, a relatively new test designed to find a subject's potential for overt aggressive behavior, he said. The hand test, he said, had been worked out by a couple of psychiatrists about three years before, and he was doing research on it himself. Involved showing a subject a series of pictures of hands and gauging their reactions. Okay. Relkin had shuffled to the stand and chosen to affirm rather than swear that his testimony would be the truth and nothing but the truth. He testified that Gertrude, rather than being sadistic, is masochistic. She has a need to be punished herself. On the issue of legal sanity, Relkin was not much help to Urbecker. She is not psychotic, he said. She knows right from wrong. But he did back up Gertrude's denial. Her story is probably true, he said. She just became overwhelmed with all those children. When the children started to take over, I really believe that she really went on drugs and withdrew. She would wake up, take more drugs, and go back to sleep. She was overwhelmed psychologically. She just crumbled. They all took over. He said her personality was very inconsistent with that of someone who would harm people. Is she aggressive? asked Urbecker. No, not at all, said the witness, and he said she had a great need to be loved. Relkin was all but destroyed that afternoon in cross-examination by Leroy New and Forrest Bauman, another attorney. No impulsive behavior pattern, New asked. I would not consider it impulsive, no, the psychologist said. New referred to Relkin's drawing evidence of masochism from the fact that Gertrude had been beaten by her mate. Did she say she enjoyed that, he asked. No, Relkin admitted. She did not say that. But she had indulged in masochistic behavior by allowing herself to be beaten by her lover and allowing her children to take over, he said. How would she react toward hostility toward her, asked Bauman, who was attorney for Coy and Johnny. She would take it, the witness said. How would she react to a harsh examiner? Bauman had in mind Leroy News' brutal examination of Mrs. Banaszewski the day before, in which she became defiant and outspoken. She would probably break down and cry, said Relkin. Would she get sarcastic? <laughs> no. Do you have an opinion as to your type of personality? Bauman asked the psychologist. Opinion of your type of psychologist. Certainly I do. Let me say, the lawyer continued, searching for a phrase, do you have passive or defensive traits? What's the danger? Many times, Relkin answered, a psychologist puts his own traits into the results. Would you describe Mrs. Banaszewski as a warm, loving, affectionate woman, asked Bauman. Relkin said that he would. New had another question. 
would she be reluctant to call her daughter a liar? Yes, in fact, Relkin said. He had told her that was what she would have to do to help herself. Did you encourage her to help herself? asked New. Yes, no more question. So Urbecker's next line of witnesses included four physicians and four jail matrons. The physicians, all of whom who had treated Mrs. Banaszewski at one time or another, confirmed her long medical history of anxiety, and asthma, bronchitis, anxiety, kidney infection, a nodule in, her, in the breast, and indigestion, insomnia, tiredness, headaches, tension, and the rash at the time, eczema rash at the time of her arrest. One of her doctors uh, said he had treated Mrs. Banaszewski at his office on October 25th, the day before Sylvia's death. Under cross-examination, he could find no record of her having treated her on the 23rd, contradicting her testimony that she had gone to his office that morning. The jail matrons testified that Gertrude looked very thin at the sick at the time of her arrest, that she looked even worse than the haggard woman she was at the time of this trial. She looks good. Uh, compared to the way she was then, said one of the jail matrons. Jerome Relkin had provided the comic relief in the two-and-a-half-week-old courtroom drama, so Urbecker went on to call more witnesses. So this Dr. Relkin is one of these interesting psychologists that testifies in court, and people just look at his authority and are supposed to be awed by it, but once we get to a greater examination, you see his entire testimony was contradicted by the behavior of Banaszewski herself when he said that she would be shy and intimidated and when in fact she was belligerent and sarcastic in her testimony. So from there, uh, Banaszewski ended up testifying again and so I go to chapter 20 of John Dean's book, House of Evil. And that chapter is neurotic, but not psychotic. Gertrude Banaszewski had her handkerchief to her face. She was weeping and complaining of severe shortness of breath. It was shortly after 9 a.m. on Tuesday, May 17, 1966, in the fifth week of her trial for murder. She insisted on going back to the witness stand in rebuttal. Her attorney, William Urbecker, said it was against his advice. She barely gasped out, gasped out her testimony. Was it just another attack of asthma, or was she finally realizing the gravity of her situation? Her testimony varied little from her earlier testimony and added little. Three court-appointed psychiatrists followed Gertrude to the stand and testified, one after the other, that they believed the woman was sane now and was at the time of the crime. All other defendants had withdrawn their insanity pleas. The doctors stuck to their opinion through a total of more than two hours of prodding cross-examination by Urbecker. I don't believe she's ever been psychotic, said Dr. Dwight W. Schuster. She had what is commonly termed nervousness. Schuster added on cross-examination that she might even be psychoneurotic or neurotic, but not out of touch with reality. We can speculate on what all that means. After about ten minutes, Gertrude pleaded to the bailiff for help. 
Court was recessed and Gertrude was given first aid for her, quote, attack, unquote. When Court reconvened, Urbecker asked the doctor what he thought of the savage torture inflicted on Sylvia Likens. This does not necessarily mean, Dr. Schuster said, that this was sadism. I think these things can occur with a person who is in contact with reality. I have not said she does not have some emotional problems, he added. I think she knew what she was doing and could have controlled herself. Unquote. Would you recommend this defendant, Gertrude Banaszewski, for a babysitter job? Her attorney asked. Objection sustained. Dr. Schuster added in response to questions by Leroy New that Gertrude had been vague with him when he interviewed her. He said she told him, I don't know the whole story. Mr. Urbecker doesn't want me to say. Dr. DeWitt W. Brown was next, another psychiatrist. He said he did not use the terms sane and insane, but he said, in my opinion, she was not psychotic or mentally ill at that time. He said she had some impaired memory, however, possibly through the use of, quote, the mental mechanism of denial, a trick that we all use to control or repress things in the unconscious, unquote. And there could be a good discussion about behavior analysis in memory and about how memory is a, a reconstructive process. But I digress. Back to the book. On cross-examination, Dr. Brown came to the aid of the discredited psychologist Relkin. Most of her life, he said, Mrs. Banaszewski, he said of Mrs. Banaszewski, she's been a relatively passive person. She's been able to keep most of her hostilities repressed. But such repression, he said, can be broken with temper outbursts. Dr. Brown finished at 12.42 p.m. Judge Robb had declined to call a lunch recess at noon. Somewhat tested by Urbecker's lengthy but futile cross-examination, he said he did not want to keep the doctors waiting. However, Gertrude complained of sickness again, and the judge did grant a five-minute recess. Dr. Ronald H. Hall took the stand at 12.52 p.m. He said he had not found any indication that Gertrude was ever insane. As for her vagueness in relating events leading to Sylvia's death, he said, I felt she was feigning it. Did you testify previously in a habeas corpus hearing that she had a tendency to paranoid thinking? asked Urbecker. No, the psychiatrist said. Urbecker confronted him with the habeas corpus transcript, quoting him as saying, she had some tendencies toward paranoid thinking, but not paranoid delusions. Yes, I was wrong, the doctor admitted. But he added, paranoid thinking is a very common thing. Well, indeed it is. Urbecker launched into a long series of questions, detailing the horror of the crime, asking the doctor with each detail whether it would change his opinion of Gertrude's sanity. The lawyer then launched into a long series of questions about sadism and neurosis. Deputy Prosecutor knew had let Urbecker question the two doctors freely, but now he had had enough. He began objecting to each question as irrelevant and repetitious. Judge Robb sustained objections to eight consecutive questions by Urbecker. Am I precluded from cross-examining this witness? Urbecker asked. You are not precluded, the judge replied. Make it cross-examination, please. 
at this juncture knew as to be heard with the jury out of the courtroom. The jury was ushered out, and knew stated, We think this has reached the point of abuse. Mr. Urbecker is trying to incite and try the patience of everybody in this courtroom. He has the responsibility to behave himself in the courtroom in a first-degree murder trial. And we are going to ask that he be censured. Forrest Bowman, defense attorney for Coy Hubbard, and Johnny Banaszewski had something to say. Although he did not wholly agree with Mr. New, he said he did say that he was getting hungry, and the jury probably was too, and the jury could not therefore hear evidence with any degree of clarity. It was 1.36 p.m. Judge Robb reluctantly granted a recess for lunch. He did not rule on New's motion to censor Urbecker. After lunch, Urbecker completed his cross-examination in 13 minutes. A defense-employed psychiatrist also had examined Gertrude, but Urbecker did not even bother to put him on the stand. There was no direct testimony that Gertrude was insane. Yet the next day, Urbecker threw all his cards into the insanity plea. After an unsuccessful attempt by Urbecker to introduce the transcript of the habeas corpus hearing, the attorney settled down to discussing instructions to the jury. Urbecker tendered 193 of his own suggested instructions, and Rice and Bauman tendered nearly 50 apiece. New tendered none, and Nedoff tendered none. Some of Urbecker's would have instructed the jury that the state, quote, had failed to discharge the burden of proof in this case, unquote. Rob already had 62 of the court's own instructions to read to the jury and said he would decide overnight which, if any, of the defendant's instructions to accept. Attorneys combed through the proposed instructions for two hours late that Thursday afternoon. They bantered and joked with each other, but others in the courtroom were tense. Mrs. Banaszewski sat silent. Mr. and Mrs. Ralph Hubbard, Coy's parents, waited in the gallery after other spectators had left to get a word with their son when court adjourned at 5.30 p.m. Ricky Hobbs lit a cigarette before being led away by a deputy sheriff, back when you could smoke in the courtroom. The next morning, Judge Robb announced that he had accepted 11 instructions tendered by Urbecker, three by Bauman, and two by Rice. The instructions included Indiana's legal definition of murder. Quote, whosoever purposely and with premeditated malice kills any human being is guilty of murder, unquote. They, all, they included also one applicable to Johnny Banaszewski, who was 12 years old when Sylvia died, and to Richard Hobbs, who was 14. An infant between the ages of 7 and 14 is presumed to be incapable of committing crimes, but the presumption may be rebutted by proof that the infant possessed sufficient discretion to be aware of the nature of the act. And this instruction on sanity, quote, when there is mental capacity sufficient to fully comprehend the nature and consequences of an act, and unimpaired willpower strong enough to master an impulse to commit a crime, you may find there is criminal responsibility, unquote. So for this case, what happened? Well, the trial of all five of these defendants went on for 17 days. The jury deliberated for eight hours. It was a panel of apparently eight men and four women. Gertrude Banaszewski was found guilty of first-degree murder and uh, received a recommendation of a sentence of life imprisonment. Paula 
was found guilty of second-degree murder. Roy Hobbs and Coy Hubbard, uh, John Banaszewski Jr., they were all found guilty of manslaughter. So Gertrude and Paula were ultimately sentenced uh, to life in prison. However, their conviction was overturned by the Indiana Supreme Court. And this was on some some legal technicalities decisions in the case that they had their convictions overturned. They were retried in 1971. Paula Banaszewski probably wisely decided to go ahead and uh, just plead guilty to voluntary manslaughter. She has since been released. Gertrude Banaszewski went to trial again and uh, was convicted again of murder and received once again a life sentence in prison. Gertrude Banaszewski was known as a model prisoner, and there's some allegations that the fellow inmates gave her the nickname Mom. While she was in there, she claimed to have become a devout Christian. I recall, because I lived in Indiana then, of her parole in 1985, where she changed her name and uh, moved to Iowa. Gertrude Banaszewski never did take responsibility for the crime. She went on blaming that it was medication she was taking or the other children and things like that. She died in 1991 of lung cancer. Uh, Reflecting upon the news of Gertrude Banaszewski's death and the issues uh, raised to her sanity, John Dean, the author of the book I was reading to you earlier, in 2015 he said, I never thought she was insane. I thought she was a downtrodden, mean woman. He compared the case to Lord of the Flies, the book by William Golding. Although he stated Lycan's increasing physical and emotional abuse was not the result of what the children were doing or anything like that. So what can we make of a case like this and and what is the explanation? When you look at this carefully, you'll see the issue of insanity is a very strange thing. How, how can you determine what someone's mental state was back at a previous time, especially with the complications and bizarre nature of all this, unless you just want to believe that anyone that would do something like this has to be crazy. My opinion is maybe we ought to look at this case as if it were a kind of a sex crime. You have it's not directly of sexual abuse, although really there really was that as part of all this overall horrible abuse that was dished out on Sylvia Likens. But the whole tone of it, where she has the words, I am a prostitute and proud of it, uh, etched on her body, it seemed that Gertrude Banaszewski had a thing for uh, younger men. She seemed to uh, have them coming over and helping her out with her crimes and having relations with them and was it out of jealousy and when jealousy is intense enough uh, can we consider the violent acts that result from that kind of sex crimes in themselves it's not normally how we would think of these kinds of behaviors but looking at this case behaviorally as if there is an underlying operation going on there's a there's a motive there that develops over time and has to do with the learning history of the perpetrators. I kind of think 
something like that is a better direction to go in than just to see if a diagnosis is serious enough to determine a ruling of insanity. Although I'm, I'm speaking a little bit, probably quite a bit outside my scope here because these are legal matters and they've been reviewed. But I just don't think these basic diagnostic categories and the kinds of psychological evaluations done by Dr. Relkin that we talked about earlier is really giving us the explanations we need. I tend to think a more behavioral explanation based on contingencies and learning history is a more productive way to go in a situation such as this. If you are interested, you might want to look up a podcast we had with behavior analyst Carola Dillenberger on victimology. That was in January 31st of 2021 that we published that because that fits in really well, especially about her analysis regarding how the contingencies that shape the behavior of victims can be similar to that of perpetrator and how the overall environment leads to victimization. So I think it's really insightful and fits in well with this particular discussion. All right, now this has been kind of a somber story to talk about. I want to maybe end with something a little bit remotely positive, because in the Wikipedia article on Sylvia Likens, it mentions uh, memorials and legacy. In June 2001, a granite memorial was dedicated to her life. It's in uh, Willard Park, Washington Street, in Indianapolis, and perhaps you'll see the picture of this here uh, on the podcast uh, website. There's also now the uh, the Sylvia Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center. The Sylvia's Child Advocacy Center is officially dedicated to the memory of Sylvia Likens, founded in 2010 in Lebanon, Indiana, initially named the Boone County Child Advocacy Center. This is a nonprofit organization uh, renamed in Sylvia's honor in 2016, with the executive director stating, the most important thing that we can do is tell kids they are hurt and we are listening. This was something done to young Sylvia. Her family is thankful, though it doesn't have to be that way anymore. She did not die in vain. She died a horrific death. But because of that, we're hoping that another child can be saved. Behaviorology. Check us out on podomatic.com or anchor.fm. Please send questions, comments, and requests for transcripts to criminalbehaviorology at gmail.com.